and welcome to episode four of the Corridor of Uncertainty podcast. It's a monthly podcast where we delve into the stats and the modeling behind FPL. And today we have a special guest. So I'm here not only with my co-host Jamie, I'm also here with the modeling legend of the FPL community, FPL Review. So uh, first of all, Jamie, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Yep. Excited to be here and um, get chatting. Doing fine. And, and Review, how about yourself? I'm doing very well, yeah. Looking forward to um, the pod and what we're going to be discussing, what's coming up. Yeah, it should be good. So so we're going to kind of delve into a bit of Review's backstory, how he got into modelling and how the model works. Uh, we're also going to probably touch on one of the most boring and done-to-death topics in FPL, which is luck and skill. So Review has <laughs> a... Yeah, exactly. Can't wait. Review's got a tool which shines, I think, quite a lot more insight than a lot of the discussion that you normally get. So it's worth kind of delving into to that. And then obviously with the international break, everyone is either uh, infectious or injured. No, There are no players to pick from, so there's no point making any transfers. So we'll, we'll delve into a bit of the current landscape and see what we're kind of doing with our teams and pull out some some strategy discussion from that. So... Yeah, yeah. Review. Why don't you Why don't you kick us off? Like, how how did you get us in? How did you get into FPL? And how did you get into modeling? Give us a bit of the the backstory. Um. So yeah, I guess probably not uncommon for most people in the FPL community. I've obviously loved football since I was a kid. Whether it was watching, playing, or whatever, and I, I suppose I come from a kind of a background which is probably quite involved in numbers. So I decided, why not kind of see with all the available data out there. Uh, what could be done with it? I mean, I was, I was obviously influenced by a few bits and pieces, a few resources I came across. Like, for example, there's a guy called Joseph Buchdahl, who does really interesting analysis on betting markets. And that was probably one of the things that set me off on, let's see how we could apply that to Fantasy Premier League. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, what, what about FPL? What kind, of, what kind of drew you to that? Um, well, it's pretty much just with my mates, you know, um, since we were teenagers back in the mid 2000s it was just something that we were interested in because we were totally obsessed with football so obviously over that period of time there's times where you kind of you're very interested in it you lose interest depending on I guess if you're busy at university or whatever but yeah no it's over the past few years I've kind of rekindled my interest in the whole thing and yeah no I'm really enjoying it again now yeah nice yeah you were crazy enough to to make your model public as well and have yeah. kind of the, the vultures kind of pulling it apart. I'm, I'm not sure I'd be brave enough. <laughs> yeah, it's part of part and parcel of it all, isn't it? Um, but yeah, do you know what? Most, most of the feedback's quite positive. But yeah, as soon as anything like that goes public, it, it's very easy to kind of target specific things or question outcomes against predictions and that kind of stuff. But ah, yeah, I'm sure. How did you like come to, like, were you making like models yourself as like a hobbyist? for a while before you kind of had the idea to start like making a public model and making a website with these tools or did you come up with that as part of the idea of making a public tool how did that come about because you know Simon and I have probably been mucking about with models since we started playing FPL more or less um, or before but I've never thought of like going to the extent of making an amazing tool for other people to use, uh, you know, in my own time and um, and all that. So, like, what made you want to do that and get into that? So, yeah, I guess, I guess the the site really started. In, I guess you can see from the name, it was based on the, the whole review idea, which was more so oriented on using past XG data and saying, okay, over your whatever five hundred decisions in a season, what your outcome would be, and then 
Um, that was something that I just built kind of as my own personal test and had running right. some Python scripts. Interesting. Um, and then from there, I kind of, I was interested in the idea, okay, you know, bookmaker odds seem interesting if they're applied with kind of margin cleaning and put in yet format of whatever expected value, uh, expected points in the future, and maybe it could just be a useful tool. So that was kind of experiments that grew into a larger thing following a few tests. That's cool. So it started off as the actual review tool where you're kind of saying how many points should you have reasonably expected to have gotten from the decisions that you made? That was the first thing that was 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 there. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, ex- exactly. So yeah, it, it started off as kind of, well, actually the very start of it would have been in the kind of an assessment of the players and then the idea was there, hold on, maybe you can tag that assessment during the period of time that you own the player and then come to this overall conclusion. And then I, I tested it on a few set points, such as the guys leading or the overall table. I did this initial analysis, I think, which, which kind of caught on a bit, which had like Bill Ronka. I was kind of comparing, okay, you know, this guy's considered special. And based on the underlying data, we can see it. And he's just as good as the guys who end up whatever number one in overall. So yeah, that that's kind of really what spawned the whole site, and and yeah, I mean, there's now it's probably the secondary thing on the site, which is probably not what I expected. <laughs> that's cool. So so when you said that there was um, player assessments that started, what's that? Is that like a retrospective assessment of how many points a player should have got based on the shots in the game or something like that? Yeah, well, it's kind of just looking at, yeah, you know, um, based on the underlying data. Yeah, exactly. Um, was this player performing well or was he performing poorly? So yeah, pretty much pretty much that. Um, and, and, you know, bef- before that even, I had, much like yourself, but, but a fairly rudimentary team model was the first thing that I did. I was running analysis on that against betting markets, following just research. I wasn't really, I didn't ever delve into actually applying any any bets because you can see quite clearly it's uh it's a very easy thing to, to lose a lot of money on very quickly if you don't know yeah. what you're doing yeah, yeah. It, it was a it was a pipe dream of mine until i started testing my models and realized i would be losing money rather than making it and therefore <laughs> probably not a great career choice yeah exactly um but yeah that that's probably those kind of things started off the whole interest and it kind of merged into fpl because yeah no, i mean that Modeling and stuff was part of it was FPL, um, part of it was just general interests yeah, and just kind of evolved from there, which is probably similar to yourselves. I don't know, or maybe it was purely FPL oriented all along. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think Simon was was much more from the sort of football side and then coming towards FPL. And, and for me, I suppose it was probably the opposite. It was like I was kind of getting into this game of FPL and, and how do you sort of how do you game it uh, and interested in that but uh, no I've, I've always been interested in football and definitely becoming more and more interested in uh, the football side of it I think that's probably like a really healthy thing to have as well because you can definitely get too myopic with regards to like FPL particular things you know and things that seem to happen in FPL but there's really no like footballing reason for them to be occurring and if you just like stare at these FPL points that players have accrued then um, it can get like easy to believe you're seeing something where it doesn't exist so I think to have like a healthy interest in football is something that's probably going to help someone who's who's coming up with uh, a model like this so that's cool 
And, and should we should we delve a little bit into the the nuts and bolts of the model itself? So I think it's it's built a bit differently to mine and Jamie's in the ours. Uh, basically XG-based models, whereas yours, you've got two versions, which one is the odds and one is the, the, the massive data. So why don't you talk us through that a bit? So the odds is kind of self-explanatory, but then you only really have the odds for the next game. So maybe kind of give the listeners a bit of an overview as to how the models work. Yeah, so, so originally it was, it was working on uh, bookmaker odds. And then obviously as time passed, it, it was obviously there's questions like, you know, maybe... There's better sources there, you know, like obviously spread markets made total sense. And when we ran, when we ran the analysis, it was quite clear spread markets are better. So that, that's what the odds on site now come from. And then the other test was, okay, if I really pushed a database model, what kind of performance could we get out of it? Could it compete with bookmakers and spread markets? And, and from the analysis, it was a definite yes. And there's certain advantages to it. And part of that is exactly with, with um, odds-based projections, uh, you are kind of limited to data for the next game week. Uh, and you can create clever systems which will interpret kind of baseline understandings per player and apply them to future weeks, which is what I'm doing. But um, it's definitely preferable to create the baselines from underlying performance data and applying that as kind of an overarching understanding of a player rather than trying to infer it. So for, for the massive data model, it's it's actually a machine learning uh, model that's built in Python. It does it does use XG and I'll say XG is definitely, uh, once you get enough of it, I'd say it's the most powerful metric. I suppose the, the tweak on, I suppose, most models out there would be as part of machine learning. When, you, when you've got a machine learning model, you want to give it as much context, context as possible so it can make smart decisions and get a smart understanding of the data because it, it's very easy something like that to create a machine that's uh, um, just coming out with completely mad answers or is overtrained or whatever. Um, so I, I guess pro- probably the easiest way and, and for people to understand it, it would be in the same way that we understand an XG model. So when you've got an XG model, you've got things like your XY coordinates and those might be translated into distance and angle. And in, in much the same way, when I'm working with my model, I'll engineer um, the data in such a way that it's it's more workable and intuitive for a machine learning algorithm to make predictions from. So yeah, that's kind of a high level run through how it works. I, I suppose one note as well is that it, it's really for... That's designed really for uh, predicting uh, production rates of goals and assists uh, in particular. And the assist is a big edge over market data, which is um, very sparse. And I think some people request odds from bookmakers, but I mean, with the margins applied, it's all a bit iffy. That makes sense. And I know machine learning is often quite a bit of a black box. I mean, do do you have an idea of what what drives the model in terms of like how much XG like affects the the massive data predictions versus something like uh, the additional context you get from shots, et cetera, or, or is yeah. that still unknown to you as well? So, so there, there are ways of measuring that. So depending, I guess, on the process you're using, you can interrogate yeah, what makes the model and what goes into it and where its gains are coming from and what features are considered uh, important. Uh, and you can also tell it, I mean, from looking at the outputs and how they correlate with the variables. Uh, and what you, what you kind of see is that, okay, over certain time periods, XG is fantastic. Over other time periods, maybe you'd want to give it a bit lesser weight. And it's also maybe you want to influence it by past difficulty of opponents, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. 
that's something that we haven't actually got into on um, podcast before that we've been sort of meaning to is this schedule adjustment of uh, historic data and it's maybe like a quite a nice opportunity just to talk about that because even if you're doing something really simple and it's pretty relevant just now for the point of the season that we're in we've got how many weeks? Eight weeks of data for uh, most teams. And, you know, some people might like to think that that's a very good amount and quite a lot. And they're basing all their opinion on how the teams have done this season. But there might be some other reasons why that's not the best idea. But one of them is just that the fixture difficulty can vary quite a lot in, in over that short span of games. Certain teams will have had just easier fixture and certain teams will have had harder. So something that is quite a nice idea to do, especially when you're working with a small sample like this, is to kind of adjust, like you reverse out the effects of the fixture difficulty. So if you were playing against a team that had, you know, on average, they tended to concede 10% more goals, you might want to divide out the, the player who has played against those teams' XG rate by 10% to say, okay, this is actually what I would expect him to produce going forwards against an average opponent. That's always what it comes back to, to me, is when we're looking at all these things, whether it be like very crude measures like goals or FPL points per match, or whether we're looking at um, you know sophisticated combinations of various different measures in some weighted model that we've got, it's always about trying to say, how is this going to help me going forwards? And you know, if, if they've been playing Fulham and West Brom every week, then it's not going to help you too much just to use that raw rate. So. You kind of do this like accordion type thing where you, you smush all the data into what you'd expect a player against an average opponent and then you kind of like widen it out into like how easy you think their future fixtures are. So yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. Schedule adjustment, I think, is one of the most underrated aspects of, of when people are looking at data, especially on, on the team level. So if you're looking at someone like Liverpool's XG this year, I think they've had, at least by my model, the hardest uh, schedule uh, against for defence so far this season, so you've got to you've got to adjust those numbers. Otherwise, you're going to get some faulty conclusions. And it's one of those things which people do mentally. Like they'll they'll say Arsenal's had a really tough run of fixtures this season, but it's hard to quantify how much you should adjust your numbers by in, unless you've got a model. That's right. Yeah. So review without going into any more detail than you want to. Can you give like a sort of idea for people about how you're incorporating like past information how much how far back do you go and how are the weights changing like what's the sort of mechanism that you're using because Simon and I talked quite a lot on the modeling pod about like this kind of Bayesian spirit you know where you're you, you kind of update as you get new information and that the latest information is kind of worth more than anything that you had before that there's simple ways to do that and there's slightly more um, complicated ways I imagine what's yeah. kind of going on in your model like you know when someone this week goes out and posts yeah, puts up one and a half expected goals and they're only supposed to put up 0 0.3 what's going to happen to their numbers in your prediction model for next week you know or, or however easiest it is for you to try and kind of give us an idea without giving too much away spill the secret sauce <laughs> that's the I'll reveal the call I'll send it, I'll send it up on GitHub um, but um, yeah no it's it's um, <laughs> It works in yeah, pretty much exactly the same way that yourself and Simon have discussed. Maybe, maybe like the, the mechanism is different, but the idea, the core idea is there. It's um, I, I'd split my data into different time periods. And because it's going to a machine learning model, I mean, there's so much going on. Yeah, there's certain pieces of data. You just 
prefer recent data for and you give it, it i mean if you if you're doing manual you give it a higher weighting then there's other pieces of data where you kind of want a steadier read and i i let the machine learning model decide so i'd i'd have tags associated with it, each variable saying okay this is whatever from the last five games this is from the last 20 games and okay um it, it works that kind of mechanism and there's actually yeah i'm trying to remember the full details of all of how it works but yeah that's there's a few other bits and pieces in there but i suppose at a high level that's kind of how it would work okay that's interesting so it's sort of like bucketed up into you know some chunks of this is you know very recent this is you know somewhat less recent and so on and then you have got like labels on that if you like so that your machine learning model can decide to treat all data that is a certain um, you know time period old in the same in a consistent way across all players so then you're kind of getting this like a robust result for how to best minimize your prediction error for for fitting to your model is that is that right Exactly that. And yeah, it, it's pretty much a case. I mean, you could do it manually and there's nothing really wrong with a well thought out manual time waiting. I mean, I'm, I am working on kind of an upgrade just based on a few ideas that, that I've had and since making. I, when, once you make one of these models, I mean, the ideas are constant and kind of carrying out an annual review. And one of the things I will be testing is kind of a purely manual model versus the machine learning model as well behind the scenes. But yeah, so um, it's, it's kind of a case that, okay, rather than create a manual time waiting per each variable, I'll let the machine learning model figure it out. Very cool. Very cool indeed. Minutes is something that's obviously really hard to predict, and I don't know if you've got any sort of particular opinions about that. Something that you've kind of launched on the site this year is this hive mind idea where people can log in and make adjustments to the minutes. And your belief is that well-informed opinion about this will produce better results than, you know, like a machine learning um, algorithm would for predicting minutes. Do you want to just talk a little bit about this hive mind stuff or predicting minutes sure, in general? Sure, yeah. I mean, I mean minutes are the, they're still the most difficult parts of us without a question, because it, it's really based on, I guess, managers' thoughts and opinions, which are uh, nearly unmodelable, you could say. Whereas other characteristics are, tend to be similar week on week, it's very changeable. And one thing that you find when you do backtesting, you could say, I mean, there's a tendency for people to use average minutes from the past 10 games or, or something similar along those lines. Mm. Um, and you'll tend to find when you, do, when you do a few tests that simply using the previous week's data tends to outperform that. But it does go to show as well, managers' opinions change can change quite drastically week on week, um, yeah. depending on yeah, who misses an open goal or whatever, um, whether it's based on, on logic or whatever. But um, for a while, I, I, cre I created this hierarchical, hierarchical model, which is very intricate. And I mean, for a model, it's good. But when you look at it as a person, you always see things like, okay, you know, David Silva in his final game for City, I mean, he's going to play. And it's something a model can't pick up. And mm. people, people certainly can. So... There was this idea, I think it was FBL Research who kind of mentioned at first of maybe having a voting mechanism. And that was about almost nearly two years ago. Of something that kind of lingered away in my mind of, I mean, it is a real measurable boost in terms of how these uh, predictions perform. So for, for the last 10 or so um, game weeks of last season, I kind of hidden away from view. I was monitoring kind of inputs and seeing, okay, are, are people more predictive than models for minutes uh, and it was quite clear very quickly 
and the answer is yes. And right. there's ways of detecting particularly predictive users and people who are kind of maybe a bit sharper on that and kind of uh, narrowing down the view to those particular users. So that that's kind of what happens. And I mean, when you compare the data, it, it's really clear that, um, yeah, this is something that models just, unless somebody's able to create some sort of model that can interpret, you know, press conferences and specific meanings from managers, maybe like Pep might say something that has a different meaning than the same sentence from Ancelotti, you know? So yeah, very messy area. Yeah, totally. And and that's right. I mean, that, it's just such an interesting result. I just love the result um, that there's, you know, because it's so intuitive. And, you know, maybe that's a complaint that people have with like, oh, a model, you know, like, what does some algorithm know? And like, a lot of people probably put a lot of stock in their own skill to, you know, watch matches is one thing and, and determine who what's going on. But also this kind of stuff about, you know, listening to press conferences or thinking, okay, this guy's played his way into the team now. He's clearly going to be favored and uh, he's going to stay in there but a model would find that very hard to pick up so it is an intuitive result but it's just such a cool result and i would encourage listeners if they don't already to log in when you're making your adjustments and you're editing your minutes and use this feature because it's like we're creating a market for predicting minutes here and it will be the best market in the world um, for doing it because we're the only people that are, are doing it that I know of, you know, in, in a, as a community at least. So the more people that do it, the, the better it's bound to get, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is that question of it pays more attention to people who are more predictive and the bigger that pool and the more players that are getting this kind of inputs and data predicted for, the more valuable it is. So at the minute, I mean, people tend to centralize their inputs for kind of popular choices, um, which works very well for the game. Or I suppose if you were kind of more interested just in modeling even outside of the game, it's it's something that's potentially valuable for you. But yeah, I mean, and you find, like, you talk about it being intuitive, and it is totally intuitive that people will read us better than the model. And there's so much things in modeling that are like that, where you want to nearly apply common sense, intuitive ideas into the numbers and see what the outcome is. And a lot of times you just find out, okay, this common sense idea really does make sense. Sometimes you realize, okay, maybe that's a bit of a myth. So it's something that's it's very interesting to test with the data. Can I jump on that? Because there was something I was really keen to talk about, and it's just a really good place to talk about it, is generally, like, how do you use your model? Because you play FPL, uh, I, I'm presuming, and, and I'm presuming you use the model to, like, help you with your team selection. But one thing I think that maybe people might be, like, wary of is, oh, I don't want some, like, algorithm to just make my decisions for me. Or, you know, you, you plug in, you, you tell it to, to wildcard um, for you, and you don't like a few of the players that it's picked for some reason. You know, you don't think they're going to play or you prefer someone else. And so maybe you kind of tweak the numbers a bit or you can, you know, there's a, a mechanism on your website where you can tell it that you have to include or you have to exclude certain players. But maybe I get this impression that some people might be less au fait with sort of getting their hands dirty and actually kind of overriding the model and saying no. But how do you do that? Because, I mean, you'll know the model better than anyone. But I'm interested because it sounds like you probably still do that, I'm guessing. You know, there's times where you look at it and go, actually, no, I kind of have a belief which is different to what the um, these cold, hard numbers are telling me here. So do you want to talk about how you use the model? Yeah, I mean, it's totally reasonable. And I mean, 
it's it's writing especially if you very good knowledge of a particular team or player to give a lot of weighting to your own opinion it's great if, if you're not aware of a specific team or haven't really seen them play it, it's really nice to have this kind of baseline but yeah if, if there's a player that i don't really feel comfortable picking i don't think it's going to perform that well or maybe you know for example with aston villa there's this situation of who's going to take their penalty and when i was i was looking at bringing Grealish, i'm just going to bring them in anyway but it was just this question of okay it seems unknown and you, i put out a poll to just kind of contrast with okay i've got this you could call it prior setting in my model for who's going to take the penalty and you know that's based off an estimation um, based on past data, but also, um, you know, like Watkins came in, Barkley came in, um, there has to be some sort of manual changes made. So things like that, like I create that poll because I'm trying to get feedback from people. Okay, you know, do I want to alter my belief from the model? And sometimes you're just players, maybe maybe you'll want players heavily owned for a reason. Maybe you'll want players not heavily owned. And you're, like there might be a marginal difference in expected value. And yeah, I mean, there's situations where that arises, or maybe you just want to pair for a bit of crack, you know, if you support a specific team or something, or maybe you've got a favorite player. And yeah, I mean, definitely, I use the force include, force exclude button sometimes. I definitely change minutes. Um, I know some people use the tool, and I'm not sure if they're fully aware that you can change expected game time, but it's probably the, the most important part of using the tool. I think you miss out a lot especially if you don't make your whatever five changes to get access to the kind of expert data. I think it, you're probably left with, well, I mean, still useful, but it's, I, I wouldn't suggest kind of totally being reliant on, on the numbers it's providing if you're watching the football or following it. There's, there's one other aspect that I want to kind of dig into in terms of how you use your model, because we, we all have models that kind of spit out player projections on a week-by-week basis, but uh, you, don't, you don't get unlimited transfers every week. So what kind of time horizon do you use when you're making your decisions, and how do you, how do you think about weighting like points in this week versus points in eight weeks, and, and, or whether I should look at the next five games or next eight games and so on? How do you, how do you make your decisions using the, the, model, the, the data that you get from the model? So yeah, that that's a very important thing, and it's something that I've been kind of looking at more closely recently. And yeah, it's one of these things. Optimization is becoming very popular amongst the community. I guess that what I've got on site is an optimization tool, and one of the key concepts is okay. In terms of time, is one point today, or for in the next game, we work the same as in five weeks' time. Uh, and I, I think intuitively, you would say probably not for a number of reasons. Uh, my my own way of dealing with it right now would be I I probably um, just test out my team over a few different periods, like three weeks, five weeks, eight weeks, and give try to give us like bias to the, the fresher data, but at the same time not hugely invalidate um, my team in, in the future. Uh, so it's 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 probably quite mild and well mild enough to an extent. And I, I mean, I I think it's an interesting problem, and it's something that I've been kind of coding away in the background to enable. But the big question is, yeah, how do you wait? one point in the upcoming game week against one point in five weeks' time. And it, it's an incredibly, very difficult problem. I don't know if either of you have any thoughts or ways of imagining how, how you could compare those two values. I mean, the way, the way I approach it is definitely not scientific. I look at the next five weeks in terms of generating ideas for transfers. So I kind of sort by five weeks total. And then I look at the next eight weeks when I'm plugging it into my like, who's in my team and how many points do I expect from that team kind of tool, which are numbers which I've kind of plucked out of thin air more than anything else. It's 
based on that same intuition that I don't really care what the projection is in game week 38 at this point in the season because it kind of has zero value to me. I'm going to have another 30 transfers plus two wild cards before then. And I care much more about the next week than I do about 10 weeks time, but I don't know exactly what that weight should look like. So I kind of just draw a hard stop at eight weeks with the idea being that if I see the impact on my team over the next eight weeks, I can kind of figure it out by then. And it's about trying to get a balance between missing out on on potential short-term gains versus wasting transfers on players that aren't going to be good for your team over the the medium to long term. And and therefore you kind of end up with too many fires. So I don't have a, a good answer. I don't know about you, Jamie. I've got some thoughts, but it definitely is not too scientific either. Something that I did when I was on top of my game was I used to decay the availability expectancy of players going out into the future by some sort of like, you know, like some sort of exponential decay. So it would maybe they'd be like 1% less likely to play next week, 1% compounded, you know, like uh, squared less likely to play the following week. And it would decay kind of into the distance like that. But for players that were more injury prone or who I had like a stronger belief that they were more likely to be injured. So if if you can imagine it, everyone is kind of decaying towards like some central injury tendency like what's the chance that a random player gets injured in a random game week probably very small but some players are kind of decaying towards like a lower or a higher value you know slightly depending on whether i consider them to be like a very injury prone player so if it's someone like antonio who if we like take him as a as an example of someone who we believe to be pretty injury prone i would actually be counting his points eight weeks down the line as a smaller value than someone who is not injury prone. That was like one like quite snazzy little detail that I built into one of my models a couple of years ago. The other thing that I would say is if we want to explore why we're doing this, like why are points worth less in the future than they are now? Because obviously they technically aren't. You know, a point in eight weeks is worth the same as a point now. And actually that's an important wrinkle that I think a lot of people miss is Sometimes people like try to cover points in a certain game week at the expense of points in another game week. You know, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't actually matter when you score the points. It, you, they all add up to the same thing at the end. That's an aside. The, the reason why it's intuitive to say, I think, that points are worth less in the future than now is because, well, okay, you've got this added uncertainty about players that might get injured or what if like a team just starts performing really badly or another performs really well? You know, you don't really want to be buying someone in because they've got great fixtures in six to nine game weeks time. So it kind of makes sense that you want to weight those less. But another aspect which is really hard to put a, like a quantifiable amount on, I think, is that we get transfers every week. You get one new free transfer every week. So, you know, if you optimize now for the next 10 weeks, it'll give you a certain team that's best over the, you know, the whole fat period. But really, you, you could ride someone for the first five weeks and then jump on to someone else. And the the sum of those two points is actually higher than the player that it recommended in the optimization. And it's because of this feature that we have transfers. So for me, it, it often comes down to actually having like a planner where you can 
put those transfers in in the future. You know, that's something you can do on the review website. I think Ben Crellin's got a famous transfer planner that people can get. And I, I think it sounds like you've got something similar, Simon, like a yeah. mechanism for kind of trying to ex- expect that. So that's another like solid reason to do with the rules and gameplay of the game, why we should put a little bit less weight on future points. But how to actually quantify that, I don't know. I think it always comes back to me as like you just want to run a million billion simulations of a really excellent model that's making really good decisions and like taking into account the rules of the game and stuff like that, which, you know, I don't think that even you review, maybe I don't know how close you feel to that kind of thing or if it's something you've even thought about, but I I think it's a pipe dream for for most people. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I mean, I think it's kind of a frustrating situation in, in one way and for three people like us, you're probably heavily database-based and it's nice to have a some kind of numerical indication there's something where it, it just isn't there and, and it's interesting as well you, you touched on two points that were the ones that were kind of my mind about this is it's that mass variance where like there's one thing that's an error but i mean for that player who's one point better in five weeks time maybe he turns out to be 1.2 points better or 0.8 points better and it doesn't really matter about the variance in his points but it's the variance of everybody else's points maybe there's 10 different options who all greatly improve relative to him. And it, it's it's something that's, I mean, I don't know, it, it's it's a real challenge. And and also it comes down to, okay, maybe you end up having an injury and you have to make a forced transfer in game week two and then you're locked out of the move that you wanted to make. Um, so I, I think we're almost limited to saying, okay, do you know what? This looks reasonable. And it's, it's kind of how a certain weighting, maybe it looks like how we should be doing this. I, I, I don't really see... Like now, beyond yeah, some supercomputer process, how we can get a hard number on? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you did make me think of something which I think is maybe an interesting thought. The people that play the game a long time and are good at FPL, they might not be modelers or care about this or you know want to know or understand what it is that we're trying to talk about just now. But they might actually have kind of heuristics that help them to play the game in a way that is actually allowing for this stuff. Uh, the thing that kind of sprung to mind with the example you were given there, review, was if you had a choice between like a couple of players that, or a couple of combinations of players that you thought were like roughly equivalent, you might go with the combination that allows you a greater flexibility to, to you know, if there's a few other players within that player's price point vicinity, you know, you, there might be like yeah. a few other options there. And that's just like a practical kind of rule of thumb that experienced players might kind of come to play by. But the technical reason that they might be doing that is kind of what we're trying to get to the the core at just now. So I think oftentimes I do find that the handed down FPL community wisdom and these kind of rules of thumb that people come up with, the heuristics, they they are actually pretty helpful and they do tend to speak to certain problems like this that we're trying to talk about. I find it interesting one because we do see there's, there's so much people trying different optimization algorithms lots of people trying linear programming solutions to the the problem uh, and yeah uh, it's something that maybe people will start to move towards and just by the volume of people interested in this may, maybe we'll start getting concepts on how to analyze this how to weight it beyond kind of gut feel or reasoned weightings so yeah it's probably it's probably something that maybe, maybe that will come out in a couple of years time well, yeah, if we keep chipping away at it and we're joined by smarter and better people with more time and more interest, then, you know, we'll, if, as long as we keep that mindset, 
that you definitely have that I really uh, appreciate, then um, yeah, we will definitely chip away at these things and come to a greater understanding of them, I'm sure. The modelers are going to break the game. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think, yeah, it, it's something that's probably never got, fortunately enough, for the game. It's it's something, there's probably always going to always be an element of things that people can see, especially, you know, people who are specifically close to maybe one or two teams. Um, they're going to see things and know things, uh, which is great. It's it's just a footballing understanding, which can really help. Uh, and I mean, these models, as I guess three of us know, are extraordinarily useful. And, and to be honest, you could probably have great seasons based off a really good model, playing the game fairly blindly. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe there will be a model that kind of totally breaks everything, but hopefully not. It'd be kind of disappointing if it looks out that way. Even if it does, I think so much of the game becomes psychological in terms of your, your almost it becomes a game of self-discipline in terms of not wanting to jump on shiny things or, or not wanting to overrate recent data. Even if you have the, the data and the scientific backing, it's still very easy to have your own cognitive biases take over. Yeah, and it's a very, very difficult thing. I mean, when, when is it a bias? When is it expert knowledge? It, it's such a hard thing to know. Tell you after the fact. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> all, all these discussions of, of how to break the game kind of lead us quite nicely on to, to manage a skill. Number one, does it exist outside of your overall rank? We, we think yes. What, why don't you talk us about like what FPL Review originally was? So there's a few... For the, for the listeners that haven't seen the tool, there's a few different rankings that you've got in there. You've got your FBL rank, that's pretty self-explanatory. You've got your XG rank, your odds rank, massive data rank. There's like a, a luck score and uh, the word luck means a lot of different things to different people. And then you've also got an expected rank. Why don't you kind of talk us through how the tool works and what insights we can get out of it in terms of the, the discussion of manager skill? Yeah, so I, I find it quite useful myself, but I, I can understand probably from how it's laid out that it can be confusing to people and specifically last season, things like the, I guess, yeah, the massive data rank and the employed odds rank, they're probably most popular things. And I think there, there can be confusion at times where you see, okay, on number, whatever, 1,500 in massive data rank. And what that specifically is, is that, you know, based on expected value, you're the 1,500 best in the world according to that model but one note on that and i think something that well it was kind of a thing that was difficult to catch on was that didn't mean you're expected to be ranked 1500 in the world the, the variance and it's labeled look in the tool which is kind of maybe a bit inflammatory but it just fits on uh, on the screen on the mobile phone unfortunately so <laughs> that, that's why i'm going with that uh, it'd be great to use variance but uh, with, with the variance across 7 million users i mean there's going to be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands who have, you could label quite extreme positive variants. So I've added this new feature in this season, which is your expected rank. So based on your expected value performance and also your post-match kind of XG data, this is kind of, okay, typically a manager with this kind of data would be expected to rank to whatever half million right now. And maybe come game week 38, it's going to say 20K, 10K. Uh, hopefully that kind of eases people's expectations because I think a lot of people were getting disappointed or maybe they were confused or thought there was this flaw in the tool where, you know, suggesting, oh, you should be 100 in the world. But I mean, that's a totally absurd and unreasonable expectation, I think, for anybody to have, you know. But it, it does mean that you're, it thinks you're an extremely good manager and, and that's, yeah, you're making your strategies maybe the 100 best in the world, but your expectation of outcome should be a bit less um, lofty. If I could uh, surmise what I think is going on here, um, just for my own benefit, 
when we're talking about the massive data points and the odds points, these are pre-match modelled expectations. I don't know if we've, have we ever talked about expected value on the pod, Simon? Probably, but there's no harm in doing it again. Right, well, okay, so just for clarity, when you're talking about probability, an expected value is like the the mean outcome, the central outcome that you expect to see on average. Now, a simple example in FPL might be, you know, if someone scores, uh, if Kane scores a goal or he doesn't, and let's say there's a 50% chance he does and a 50% chance he doesn't, he's going to get two points if he doesn't, and he's going to get six points, let's say for argument's sake, he doesn't get any bonus uh, if he does. And so there's you've got 50% of two plus 50% of six. On average, he's going to score four points, and that's what we'd call an expected value for Kane in that particular match. Now, your model review is producing, and so are Simon and, and I's models, producing these expected values for players in particular matches, and that's like the central, the central estimate that we have for a player in a given game week. And when you have the these the, your massive data rank and your odds expectation rank, that's adding up all the points that the kind of the best pre-match expectations that one could reasonably hold, uh, if you think it's fair to call them that, would would be saying that you would be due to you know you'd be due to get. Some people might say they've got an edge on that. They can they know a little bit more. They've got a little bit of a better model, so they think that okay, they've actually got a legitimate claim to expect a few more points than that. But more or less, this is for argument's sake. Let's just say that's the kind of like the best pre-match expectation you can have realistically of what a player is going to get. And if you come out a hundredth on that, then you could say, okay, well, I've I've been I've had a sensational year of like being the hundredth best manager in terms of all the decisions I've made and all the players I've managed to get out on the pitch and the points that they were expected to score. So that's like your odds or massive data rank, and then your expected rank. Does that just put you? Does that just put those points into the actual FPL scoring ladder? And just say, what rank are you? Basically, that's saying it, it doesn't take into account any of your luck. It, sh- it assumes you have neutral luck, but it gives everyone else the luck and variance that they have actually observed. Or is it doing something different? So it, it, it's basically doing that, yes. So it, it's giving, exactly allowing everybody else to have whatever their underlying ability plus the variance they experienced, which is, I guess, that's just a fancy way of saying their result. Yeah, it's, so then it's, it's taking kind of a refined view of a kind of merge view of your odds data, your massive data, and your XG data. So one, one note on it is as well, the weighting of those three variables changes with time. So in game week one, it's got a lower weighting on the XG data, but come game week 38, the weighting is increased. And the reason for that is because the XG data is just high variance. So it's relatively higher variance, but it's a useful variable. And that's more useful than FBL points but it's still, as a metric, quite high variance and needs time to settle out. Whereas the, I suppose, uncommon EV models probably should say massive data and pride odds models. They're kind of cleaner uh, because, yeah, you're taking an expected mean beforehand, uh, mean expectation. So, yeah, they tend to get a higher weighting early on. There's a tendency for people to think, okay, XG data is certainly going to be the most useful metric there. But amongst active managers, when you analyze it, you see, okay, it is the EV models, which are most predictive. If you see like a manager's performance over 20 weeks based on EV, you'll get a better prediction of how he's going to perform in FPL than if you saw his XG data or FPL points, which is 
something that's I guess is non-intuitive especially with these kind of models which are and I can appreciate it can be hard to trust it, it's much easier to trust XG data or the results because they're things that we know and it's important point as well I mean um, there is no perfect model uh, and there never there never will be a perfect predictive model which is part of the challenge and part of the fun but we do see amongst good models high correlation uh, and maybe we disagree on specific players and whatever but you can see the likes of Stephen Harrell Fabio Borges Tor, Mikhail, Tokvam, those guys seem year on year to end up in the top 100 strategies in the world based on my modeling as well, which, which is a good sign for all of us, really. Cool. Point of clarity as well, just on the, the XG rank, that's really interesting what you said about how the weights change as the season goes on, and that makes perfect sense because if you imagine, I'm imagining kind of like the noisiness, like the amplitude of the signal, and if it's the raw FPL points at the start of the year, there's a massive amount of noise. And then if you look at the XG, that noise is like tuned down somewhat, but you still get games where people are putting up eight shots or you know like something stupid like that or they put up one and a half xg like bamford the other day and stuff and that is pretty noisy still in small samples so it is interesting what you're saying about the how the pre-match prediction is is obviously like a kind of smoother and more like i don't know what to say grounded kind of realistic estimate but just the distinction for people the xg points and the xg rank that's showing you what points you should have got based on the shots that actually happened in a game. That's, your po- that's what you call your post-match observational uh, type data. But it's also possible to build a pre-match expectation using XG as one of your central inputs. So, I mean, I just kind of wondered if people were kind of aware of that, like, subtlety i suppose it's like we're using xg for different purposes here like one of them is you might use it as the lifeblood of your predictive model and you might make a pre-match prediction which might be very good and sensible with that and the another way that you can use it and the way that you do use it on your site is you look at okay what xg was actually accrued in the match based on the shots that happened and you can kind of say well those were the points that you deserve to get by that metric and it takes out some of the finishing noise which is a nice feature it's kind of like when people look at um, the xg tally of a match after the match happened and try and use it in a descriptive way rather than a predictive way is that all right yeah that that's totally correct and um yeah i mean fortunately i guess using those totals in a descriptive way for fpl works very nicely because we're purely interested in total goals and total assists and whatever clean sheets Whereas, yeah, with, with at matches, trying to determine who's the better team, it's more of a question of yeah, match state and things like that, which are kind of tricky. But yeah, no, your, your understanding of, of season review is, is spot on. I think, you know, it's, it's laid out in this tail format, which works well, I think, for data-oriented people who maybe have read a few threads and whatever, picked up what's going on. But I, I think, personally, maybe I need to move it to almost, I, I don't know, like a almost call it a 23 and me kind of format of it kind of like walks it through each metric because it, it's almost too abstract i think for for i, I guess a lot of people and it, it's just it can be confusing and um I, I guess the value in it can be hard to find even though maybe it, it's it's kind of easier for us or maybe some people to interpret which is a shame because i think there's value there for a range of users but it is probably my job uh, it's something I guess I can say outright. I'm not a, I'm not a web developer or somebody who's used to 
creating user interfaces. Uh, so uh, that's, that's my job to kind of present it in a way that, that works for people. And it's something I, I think I probably isn't better than initially was, but there's still, you know, bits and pieces to be done with it to, to get full value out of it. Totally agree. I mean, the way the site looks and everything like that is brilliant. Uh, you know, just if I was to try and think about doing something like that, it would be a million times worse. But I, I also have this feeling that if other people, like as you say, if everyone understood what this was telling us, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure more people would would really be like really enthusiastic about it, you know. Um, and I kind of I felt that way about some of the the stuff that I've produced myself that I've been really enthusiastic about, or a lot of it's kind of in how you are able to communicate that in a way which sort of brings people in. So yeah, I think that probably is like a process that we're all going through. Like Simon, you know, you you started tweeting out your um, captain matrices this season and they've been really popular and it's just a kind of like it's a it's a really nice presentation idea to present the captain as being on zero and everyone else as like the deficit to that high score as as just a way of like leveling it out for like a visualization when you share that. So I don't know if you have any like, you know, was that a bit of a eureka moment or something like that? But I think it's that kind of thing that we're talking about is uh, it is always a challenge to find ways of getting people to be as excited about the nerdy stuff that we know is good, uh, which has maybe been quite nice about the pod. You know, there, we have found a lot of enthusiasm from uh, from a lot of more people than I might have expected, actually, for the kind of sad stuff that I like. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is interesting, and I think it's a good challenge as well. It kind of it, it does it helps communication with people and kind of understanding. Do you know what something and something that I've really struggled with and it's been a problem, especially in the early relations of the site. Things that maybe totally intuitive to me, maybe only only intuitive to me, if you know what I mean, or maybe a small subset of people, subset of people that I've explained in full to. So it's something that's gradually getting better. And, and I, I like, I'm sure now I have to say, I'm sure that's in terms of developing websites, either of you could give it a good go. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, the, first, the first attempt, so I don't know, hopefully there's no screenshots of what the site was like. Years ago. Jesus, is quite quite embarrassing, to be honest, looking back at it. Okay. Well, um, what I'm hearing is there's opportunity here for even more improvements, which is exciting. We we had a couple of questions from people, you know, when we asked for, for user to submit questions and some of them were, uh, you know, kind of incredulous that you offered this for free. And some of them really wanted you to put it behind a paywall so that less people would benefit from. <laughs> so that have people doing. begging you to make your free thing paid. It's normally the opposite. <laughs> That's right. It's the please take my money gif. So yeah, do you have anything you want to talk about? Like what what next for FPL review? Yeah, so I mean, something that's quite likely to happen. I mean, for the site to exist, there there's costs involved in running this, and also more so, it's a time focused task, which which can I suppose when you're as you two will, will know when you're trying to redevelop or analyze in depth your model, it, it can be a huge time sink. Uh, and uh, so I imagine. Next year, it's probably going to be January. Um, it's more so a t- matter of me just doing it. I just, maybe I'm not so interested in, in kind of setting up a paid service and dealing with all the stuff associated with that as I am in analyzing the data, which is probably delayed it a bit. But yeah, no, unfortunately, I suppose maybe fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, it, it is going to, a certain elements of it are going to be put behind a paywall. And, you know, yeah, maybe it's the massive data model. Maybe I'll leave the employed eyes model free for use um i won't be closing the full thing off to the public 
was going to be a matter of you know designing this in a smart way where people who pay get good value and, and but there's still stuff for people to use for free and hopefully gain insights from so yeah i suppose we'll, we'll see it's probably going to be january hopefully if i if i manage to get a bit of time to put into it cool all right well let's look forward to that that sounds good i, I just kicking myself here because there was actually something i really wanted to ask you about skill as well you had a really interesting result on how likely it is to like have repeatable top 10k finishes i think there was something that came out maybe it was at the end of last year as what you were looking at that kind of suggested that nobody with negative luck finished in the top 10k more or less and you know top 10k is something that people who like to consider themselves as being good at the game kind of aim for as like a, a realistic goal or even like a minimum goal for a season but there's so many more people playing now than there ever was. And that pushes everyone down a bit. And then also, I think the skill level has been democratized quite a lot, not least by things like the FBL review model. So, yeah, did, have you been doing work that you want to talk about on this? You know, how should we feel about how easy it is or how likely it is to finish in the top 10K in a given season? Yeah, so, so there's a, a few things that kind of hint at, you know, what, what's a reasonable expectation for maybe an active interested user and you know what's what's a typical reasonable expectation for maybe if you if you've got enough of an ego to think maybe you're one of the top 10 or 100 in the world um so so like when, when we were looking at the season review tool i carried out this whatever 200 case um user scan was analyzing the top ranked 200,000 managers in the world and one of the things looking at it was it suggested okay of the top 100 in the world in terms of massive data that's only I think something like fifty percent or so. Well, no, sorry, fifty percent did finish in the top ten k. And you'd be questioning, okay, based on how how I guess people set their expectations on platforms like Twitter or you know Reddit or whatever other community, ten k seems to be an extremely common goal. And you wonder, okay, how does that align with reality? So one of the tests that got me interested in is the repeatability of finishing top ten k. And it's quite it's quite a simple test. It's it, I mean the hardest part of it is I guess collecting the data of every user. But what you end up seeing is I guess because I, I did I carried out that analysis there last week. You could see, for example, of last season's top 10k, about 600 finished 10k in 2018 2019, which is approximately six uh, percent of users, which is very low. If you look at the year before that, there were 63 of the 10,000 who finished 10K in 1920, 18, 19, 17, 18. So 63 people completed three times in a row. And basically from that, you can kind of infer a world of, okay, you could set 100 users who you could call expert, 1,000 who are like really good, 10,000 who are strong, 100,000 who are like active, interested users. You could set them probabilities of, okay, in a given year, what percentage chance do these different groups have of finishing, reaching that target? And it matches quite nicely um, with the idea that maybe the top 100 in the world have a 50% chance. And maybe if you're top 10, it's higher than that. But, you know, it, it's really a coin flip for even the top 100 in the world. And for 1,000, maybe you're looking at, I can't remember exactly what the figure was, but it might have been something like 20%, 25% chance, which, which really brings with the question mark of, you know, should, should people be reassessing their targets or Maybe people are setting themselves up for disappointment, you know, uh, which seems to be very common. People seem to be genuinely disappointed that they finished 25K or 
17k, which is quite an achievement, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Should people be playing FPL is what it makes me think when I, <laughs> when I see those numbers because it's just so um, it is just really hard to do. If you got sixty three out of like a group of a thousand that you believe to be you know excellent that have done it three years in a row, that's just so few, isn't it? I mean, the 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 thing I remember taking from it at the time was like you could play your best game all season and then get to game week 38 and you just have to toss a coin to see if you're actually going to get into the top 10k or not you know because it's like almost nobody with without positive variance managed to get into the top 10k and so yeah it's, it's yeah. A, re- a really interesting result i think it's one of those things in in life where you never really set your goals to be in the top uh, 0.15% of the distribution except in fpl where everyone does it yeah, it, it's. I think. I think part of it's set by. I guess looking at other histories of. I guess popular content creators who maybe in the year or whatever two thousand ten, it, it was more achievable on the basis of the lower volume of users, and it's like okay, this guy did it x times. I should be able to do it as well because I'm following their strategy, and it's almost a question of exactly looking at it in percentiles and kind of yeah realizing you know what it, it's it's gotten harder nerdier people have gotten involved and uh, that kind of element of growing and become more more commonplace you are kind of like it's possible to have your best season strategically play everything perfect and you could have just that one in 100 year where everything goes against you and you end up thinking that you've done awful and you just decide okay what i've done that year was totally wrong and that's just part of the nature of the game and there needs to be a way beyond something as noisy as FPL points of determining, okay, you know, am I making good decisions or terrible decisions? Because it, it, it can be very hard, even when you're using this information. I mean, sometimes you just have a bad week and you're like wondering, okay, does this work? I, I, I don't know. I don't know like what to say about what's a fair expectation, but it's certainly not top 10K. Maybe maybe very active users might want something like 30K to 70K or something. Yeah, like if I was going to say 50, yeah, something like that might be might be realistic, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a really interesting point because, I mean, I think to Simon's point as well, I think people, people tend to assign too much skill or too much responsibility to the outcome, whether they're good or bad. And I, th- I think that's something like as a modeler, someone that's interested in statistics and probability, that is a really interesting insight to have where you kind of get to see the other side of that coin where you kind of think, well, no, actually, I, I kind of feel confident that I've done the right thing here. I just got a bad beat. But you see people that really want to kind of beat themselves up for making bad decisions and like they, and they really didn't, you know, they just they were just unlucky. And I find it interesting that there's this reluctance for people to kind of admit how much of it is random. And the other side of it, like the that is when I had my really good year, I kind of felt like I was, you know, I had solved FBL. I kind of felt really like you, you just get this indestructible feeling because you're just scoring like heavy, heavy points every single week. And you, you when that happens for a whole year, Obviously, you have bad weeks and stuff, but more or less, when it happens for a whole year, you kind of think it's really hard not to think. <laughs> I'm amazing at this, you know. Um, so I, I get, I get why some people are like that, and you can see people who are like trading off of one good season, and it makes me like really. It, it, but once you understand the amount of variance that's involved, it does make me very 
skeptical about people that are like that are pretending to be experts based on one very good season uh, and more impressed by people who have had like lots of really nice solid finishes especially in more recent years because like you said we've got we've had really exponential growth in the number of players and that just makes getting an absolute rank exponentially harder really i don't know how many times the number of players will have doubled since 2010 but couple at least so yeah it's it just is harder we know all yeah, about I, trading trading off one good season setting up a podcast and yeah, that's it. come and follow us we've got all the tips and yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's one interesting thing i noticed as well is that i suppose if, if you imagine a world where you sign whatever probabilities of groups of people and then you you play it out and you, you test out okay of, of this group of people you know finish whatever 10k three times in a row when you analyze, okay, what populations make up that group, you realize, okay, maybe only 25% of that are true experts. And seven All right, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> the range of very good to kind of more active casual. And this, it's this interesting thing of, you know what, to understand if somebody is actually good at a game or not is probably more so a higher level understanding of, you know, how do they approach it as much as, I mean, the more times they achieve something ridiculously good as that, the more confident you can be that they really are the real deal. But you probably will gain a much quicker and stronger insight just knowing, okay, this is how they approach it, rather than past results, which are, yeah, it takes a long time to, to really know, I guess, what kind of level you're at, even yourself. And that it's, it's difficult to play a game with such slow, noisy feedback because you're constantly doubting yourself and you see it all the time. It's um, a real challenge with this game. And, and you can see whatever, some, some people get the results that helps, I mean, solidify their strategy, where I'm sure there's, thousands of people who follow them in great strategies but thrown it in the bin based on results not appearing within whatever three or four weeks welcome back to the corridor of uncertainty podcast where we're going to take a look at the the current landscape in fpl so it's it's been one of those international breaks where the kind of rule of don't make early transfers before an international break has has really paid off. Everyone is injured, seemingly all of the Liverpool team. And if they're not injured, then they've caught COVID and uh, the matches are going ahead anyway. But that's that's for a whole other podcast. So how are you guys, how are you guys teams looking? I think, Jamie, you are thinking of or have pressed the wildcard button. I know you were originally planning to save it for game week 16. What's your what's your kind of thinking there? Yeah, so definitely the way that I was set up for the season was everything about it was to try and save the wild card for game week 16 because we know we're going to have four to six blank game weeks in game week 18 and four to six doubles in game week 19. So it's just a really nice idea to wild card then and probably like free hit in the blank game week and max out your team for optimizing this double game week in 19 with some sort of chip. It's just it's just a sort of natural idea. And unlike other seasons where the, the kind of big double game week has tended to fall towards the end of the season, it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case this year. So that was the plan. And I have been carrying a really kind of boring squad for a lot of the year because of that, with playing bench, like at least two, probably three playing players on the bench every week and trying to make long-term moves and like everything about the way I've been playing is to try and save the wild card but just coming into game week nine and looking at my team things had kind of started to sour one of the big differentials that I had in terms of like my squad structure and where I'm allocating my excess funds was I had Alexander Arnold and Robertson 
And that is, you know, it, it hasn't worked out so far, but it's not to say that it shouldn't have. You know, they're, they're a very good way to spend money in, in FPL. And that was kind of like where I was hedging my bets. Since I've doubled up on them, Alison Van Dyke, Gomez, Alexander Arnold, and now Robertson have all become injured, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is bad for a defence. So that hasn't worked out, and that's okay. Like you know, I, I was get, I was very much in the space of well, I'm just going to keep betting on it now because it takes so much time and effort to change the structure, and you're really you're changing into something which carries no greater expected value. I was just going to bet on these Liverpool fixtures, like things starting to come up roses for those guys and I'd actually be ahead of the curve but I did have some kind of relatively big surgery that I wanted to make on my squad with the likes of probably getting out Kane and Son whose fixtures are really sour in and bringing in the likes of maybe like Grealish or and or Watkins and maybe De Bruyne or Sterling or whatnot for their fixture runs. So I kind of had these moves planned. And then now with all the injuries, I think Chilwell is is a doubt. I'm, I'm sure he'll be fine, but he's a doubt. Robertson's a doubt. Trent is injured and the defence is bad, even if they get back. I think that Van Dijk being out is a, is a really big problem. And I think that Van Dijk and Gomez being out is a bigger problem. And I don't really think that you can talk your way around that too much like Van Dyke's probably the best central defender in the world and he allows you to do so much stuff as a team in the way you set up and the way you are like prepared to press and the risks you take because he will just make plays one-on-one when he's running back you know getting chased back towards his own goal and he'll make a save and tackle take him out and that just makes a big difference as far as I'm concerned. Slight counterpoint. I mean, Liverpool have conceded what I think five goals in eight games since Van Dijk got injured. Obviously, goals is a is a pretty noisy metric, but I haven't. I was surprised to see actually, because my intuition would have been the same as your reasoning that the defensive numbers in my model haven't shifted significantly since Van Dijk got injured. Yeah, I don't know. I've looked at it since Van Dijk got injured specifically, but I do have them dropping a lot in defence this season, like in the last six matches. So maybe there's something in the non-shot XG numbers and like game control that the model is really not liking or whatnot. I think it's, I've, I've got a similar over the course of six games, but it basically all comes from the Aston Villa game. Right, yeah, that's a bad game. Yeah, yeah, okay. No, I mean, that's interesting. The, yeah, it's fair enough. Like, it's probably, I'm sort of willing to bet that it's more noise than signal in the sample. Just because it's Van Dyke, you know, I don't really think you need to be trying to get too clever about it. True. Uh, I think if you, if you yeah. take Van Dyke out of any defence in the world, that defence just gets worse. I think Van Dyke and Gomez is is sort of doubly bad because that, that's a, a partnership as well. Like now you've got no one who was a stable, long-serving member of the of the bat for when they've been at their best. Like, okay, Matip's played a lot of minutes over the years, but, I, I, you know, I would definitely want to put some sort of decay on the on the Liverpool defensive expectations based on those guys being out. Or like I was saying on Twitter, you can try and adjust tactically for it and then maybe you just get worse going forwards. And because we want Trent and Robertson to go forwards too, then it doesn't really matter what way you slice the cake. I just think it's quite bad for Liverpool. So 
I also own Chilwell, Salah, Phil Foden, who's been suddenly doghoused, apparently, and people like Mitrovic, as well as Kane and Son, that was wanting to move anyway. So when you put all those things together, it does now feel quite compelling to wildcard because there's so many like points that I can get with relative certainty compared to where I am just now. I would just be making hits you know, for the next three weeks in a row, trying to get somewhere near where I know I want to be. And, uh, you know, normally, because I'm like a bit of a planner and quite conservative, I never really get into a situation where all of a sudden my team, I, I can make loads of expected points by making certain transfers that I didn't see coming. Normally, I'm kind of like edging towards that long-term value anyway. But right now, there is just like this real see change in the amount of points that I could get by using the wild card. The injuries precipitate it. The international breaks is quite nice. But yeah, there's COVID. So at the moment I've I am on a minus eight. I don't think I've ever taken a minus eight in the <sighs> official game before. I probably have, but maybe maybe once. Certainly not in the last three years. So at the moment I'm sitting on a minus eight and I've got like nine toes in the wild card canoe, but I I've still got one in the kind of maybe I'll try and play on <laughs> and save it. For, um, it's just hard letting go actually of the plan that I had. That's kind of the way I'm seeing it at the moment. How are you guys feeling? I, I can I can totally relate to to Jamie. Um, almost in you know the exact same situation. Whereas there's maybe kind of you could say two or two or so plan two or three plan moves that he kind of hoped to, players he hoped to move on, uh, the likes of Foden, who, you know, could still come good, but it's just, the risk isn't looking so great right now. And it just comes down, you know, is he going to get the start or not? And it, the risk just looks likely fail a bit. So I, I had that going into the game week. I was hoping for a quiet two weeks, you know, where I could just load up the team on the Friday and, and make an easy move. But obviously that that's not materialised at all. So I've got, I think, four lads now with doubts. And, and some of it's kind of annoying, like when you got to like the Chilwell, who's kind of a doubt, but I mean, he's probably going to play in reality. So it, it's kind of that question mark of, yeah. okay, you know what, am I going to hold off pressing the button or am I going to do it now? So I, yeah, I, I haven't pre- uh, decided on the wildcard yet. Um, maybe I probably need to just think about it for a bit of time, but I'd say there's probably reasonable ground to expect 20 points of value plus out of it. So probably, yeah. It, it's a matter of just pressing it and accepting that the the idea of the whatever Christmas wildcard just has to be given up on. Yeah, do you, do you have like a benchmark in your mind for how many expected points over a certain time horizon you might want to get, like might justify using a wildcard? Um, so yeah, it, it comes down to exactly like what's what opportunity is coming up and, and there's that complicated fixture setup happening over Christmas. Uh, it can be a bit awkward to evaluate, okay, what would you get out of kind of attacking this with the wild card versus attacking it without and trying to squeeze in a few transfers here and there? Probably a decent rule of thumb is I think people apply about 20 points or so. And it's probably fair enough benchmark. And, um, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm going by it, I should probably be pressing the button. But it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to move away from your plan. And also there is a chance come Friday, you know, some of these guys who are unavailable are suddenly all green lighted and you've just <laughs> done something that you kind of instantly regret. So I guess we'll have to see. That's just part of the risk of the game. Just have to see how it comes, plays out. 
Yeah, it is hard because normally you'd, you'd like to be making the most of the price changes and stuff like that as well on a wild card. You know, I envy the people that plan to do it this week uh, in, a, in a way, given the situation I'm in now, because you could just press it on the Friday night, surf all the price changes and like know that this is part of your plan and feel great about it. But it's really not what the situation that either of us are in to be by the sounds of it. But Simon, you're going to be a hero and hold your wild card. I am. It's a, it's a fine line between genius and idiocy. And I, and I don't know which side of the line I'm on, but it, I am going to hold the wild card. So I think part of my reasoning here is, I think if I was setting up a wild card, then I'm kind of extending my time horizon that I'm going to make decisions over. Because at the moment I have a kind of hard stop on, on game week 15, because I'm planning to wild card in 16. And then I can kind of, think about the next seven weeks as a, as a block and then plan from there afterwards. And if I was thinking about a wild card now, there's players like uh, Salah. I, I, I'm still probably more keen on Alexander-Arnold than, than you are. I think I was probably less keen at the start of the season. Foden could come good as soon as he gets minutes. It's, it's a weird one in that he's... Hardly played in the Premier League, but he's played quite a lot in the Champions League. I'm not really sure what to read into that. And, and I think there's players that I would wildcard away from that I would then want to get back in after my wildcard. So it seems like it, it would be a waste of a wildcard in that sense, because I'd be, <clears throat> I'd be making my squad worse from game week 11 onwards in quite a few ways. Like I picked these guys for a reason in the first place. I think I can get through with a hit or two maybe don't even need one. My squad's not in great shape. I've got Sice, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Salah, Foden, Chris Wood are my fires. Reese James and, and James Justin are shaky, but seem to be kind of holding, holding so far. And Sterling's got a knock, but I think he'll be fine. Son has the fixtures turning against him. So that's nearly all of my squad that I've mentioned. <laughs> Which yeah, when, I, when I put it like that, I'm like, maybe I should play the wild card. But, but I think if I, if, I can, if I can kind of sort out like size Foden, Trent, Chris Wood, like if I can sort out three of them uh, in the next two weeks, I think I'll be fine. I think I can hold Son. He's got two, diff- he's got two tricky fixtures coming up. But then the, the two after that, Arsenal and Crystal Palace, I think they're quite juicy. And then I can kind of get rid of Son and for 13 to 15, which are, which are three hard fixtures with Liverpool, Leicester, Wolves. So I think I can kind of ride Son out until game week 13. I don't think I need the value if I downgrade Trent. And then I can get your likes of your Grealish, Watkins and a Cancelo. And I think I can get through. Uh, so I'm going to stick to the plan. I, th- I think it's an interesting one in, in terms of it's a unique season in terms of having this early double where the first wild card can be used for for a double game week. It's it's something we, at least I've never seen. I've only been playing my fourth season. Your kind of early season strategy of when you wild card is completely upended. And I, I've almost find it liberating to have the wild card and not worry about when to play it. Uh, this this game week is slightly testing that, but kind of knowing mm. it's game week 16 is, has forced me to play in a way where I think about things in a more long-term fashion, and it's probably made me play better FPL. Mm. It's got me thinking of like how, how well you would play if you knew you had no chips to bail you out at any point. Yeah, that would be fun. I'd like that. 
that's it, I, I would just love to hold it like that's everything that I was planning was to do that and it does just make me sad to think that I'm probably not gonna so I think I think I would hold in your shoes you know the main thing is you've got a city attacker and you, you know, like unlike me you're not like doubly invested in the Liverpool defense or doubly invested in Spurs uh, attack and these kind of like quite clumsy quite ugly things to look at now that um, you know given the situations that, that's come up so yeah more power to you I say if you can go for it I'd probably agree if, if, if it's solvable with a minus four or minus eight um, over spread out over a few weeks it, it's definitely you're definitely in a, a fortunate position I like I, I can see the delete 1000 data you know 90% plus managers having used their wild card after this game week I mean it's already at like was it 67 70% right I, you're I you're guessing you, you don't you, you're not you're able to like see just now but you're just guessing that it'll jump from like whatever is just now two thirds to like being you, you think most of them that still have it will use it I, I think there's going to, yeah, I think a lot of people and um, you can see whatever of the people remaining with wildcards, a lot of people are going to pull it and because they have, they're that situation talk about having a couple of Spurs players Liverpool injuries as well. So I, I'd say Simon's in a kind of enviable position where, you know, it might pay off big come uh, the Christmas uh, double game weeks or I suppose just after Christmas is it or I, I might be I something know. like that. <laughs> It, it may end up paying big for you. I suppose we'll we'll see. It's it's something I, I'd like to be in as well. That kind of position. I think it's it's worth noting we won't see it kind of shake out until after the second round of doubles. So if we think that game week eighteen and nineteen are going to be the big doubles anyway, then I think there's a good case to be said for wild carding in seventeen with your second wild card. Some uh, people might do that. And then and then using your your free transfers and or potentially free hit. To, to manage the second double game week, which you might have some more time to plan for. Yeah, and might be, and it's probably going to be smaller by the sounds of it. Exactly. Or it might, or it might be that there, there, there's a few and they, and they tend to be smaller. Something that I'm like quite hopeful of if I do play my wild card is that we get the fixtures soon and then I can just start like free transferring towards that. Um, every transfer is just made with that in mind. You know, like I, I hope that's the case. But if it's the case that we don't get it until game week uh, 15 or something like that, then it really is a big advantage to um, to you if you have saved it. So have you thought about what, like, what it's actually going to look like? Because I started thinking about it and it made me a little less sure about the benefit of it. Once you... Like you have to presumably you're trying to bench boost in nineteen, right? Or or maybe triple captain. I, I, it depends on what the fixtures look like. So I think that if the the team that you want from game week twenty onwards looks more like the teams that play in eighteen, then I think there's a good case to be said for free hitting in nineteen and using your wild card to cover the blank. Uh, whereas if the team that you want longer term looks more like the pl- teams that are doubling in 19, then I think there's more of a case to bench boost in 19 and free hit in 18. Yeah, I suppose it gives you two outs, doesn't it? Yeah, there's two yeah. different ways to look at it. Yeah, I hadn't really considered that. I suppose I just thought to wild card into a team, into a game week where there was like literally only four to six matches. And maybe I thought that would be too few, but no, you, you probably could do a viable team with that. And just have yeah yeah okay there's also the question of when the game week one fixtures where they get put there's a chance it's not guaranteed that they get put into game week 18 as well so game week 18 may not require a free hit at all 
which gives mm. you more flexibility over what you do in, in, in 19, obviously. So the, it's, right. it's, it's very uncertain at the moment. Yes. I think having the wild card is, is better than not having it, but there's even a chance that we won't know the fixtures by game week 16, in which case I'm screwed. <laughs> there is as well, and that's scary to me. And it's also scary like to know how screwed my team is now. If I think about saving my wild card, it's really scary to think about how invested I'm going to be in that paying off in that double game week. You know, that that could be a very sad weekend for me if things go. Back. So <laughs> I think, like, as a sort of like in terms of uh, psychological safety, I think it is a good idea for me to wild card this week. I'm gonna have more fun for the next probably ten weeks of my life or something like that. And that sounds that sounds like a good deal. I think. Yeah, I, I can't I can't fault that as a strategy, but as as I like often try and remind myself, like optimize for fun, not FPL points. It's true. There's a couple of players that I thought it might be quite good to talk about. We got two questions on the corridor of uncertainty, regular favorite topic, Bruno Fernandez. Um, <laughs> we need the gist to of the one podcast. of them. <laughs> yeah. The gist of one of them was kind of like, why is your model so mean to Bruno Fernandez? FPL review. So, do you want to talk about like how do you see Bruno? How do you see him through the numbers and how do you think of him as like an FPL asset at the moment? Is he someone that you'd think to bring into your team on a wild card? Well, I think for the open game week in particular, I mean, he's probably a good choice. But in general, I'd be a bit iffy about him, to be honest. I think it's interesting as well. I would have thought most people might think, okay, why is the model so warm on, on Bruno given his underlying data? Uh, so it's, it, it was kind of interesting to see people thought it was cold on him. He's sort of, now I'd view him maybe if you're in a wild card, you could bring him in as a placeholder and transfer him out for Salah right away. I probably wouldn't get him in as a long-term hold personally. So yeah, and I I I guess the answer to why why the model I don't know I it could be viewed as mean. I suppose if you're looking at the outcome, it's probably that it, it views the outcome and it's something that I'm sure you two are both very familiar with. It views the outcome as for Bruno in particular as largely noise. That's a relatively low sample for him. The noise in football is just so great that, and we could see in his home and away numbers. I think that was another one of the questions I, I saw. Is his his performance away from home is incredible, and his performance at home is quite average. And there's this idea that oh, do you know what? He he's a specialist away from home, which is, I mean, if you're thinking in the football terms, that's just nonsense. Maybe if there was some sort of tactical meaning behind it, and, and people were discussing oh, do you know what? Man United are playing this tactic away from home, and Bruno's pivotal to it sounds out there might be kind of reasons to it but when you see what's going on it it, it kind of verifies you know what it's just kind of random noise and i suppose timing of penalties and that kind of stuff as well on top of it just kind of creating a skewed perspective on um his uh, potential oh yeah i mean what's what is actually happening with him though because i mean it's not like a mirage is it he he scored like he was averaging over eight points a game or something like that, FPL points. Like let's say that I am sort of, you know, someone who is like not looking at the underlying numbers or whatever. I'm just looking at what the returns. He averaged like over eight FPL points, I think, in 14 games last year. And now through seven matches this year, he's averaging something pretty handsome as well I don't know I'll get the number to hand in a second but he's got tw- 21 returns in 21 happening? games he's got 21 returns in 21 games now is that does that include fantasy assists no 
That's just from no. <laughs> right. incredible. He might have more. So he might be averaging more than a return a game. Sorry, and, and I can't count is is twenty three. How does someone score like have that many returns and not have underlying numbers that look nice? At, like at least good. You know, because what we're kind of saying is you, you might think he's the best value player in the game at the numbers that he, he's put up in the time that he's been in England. But we're kind of saying he's probably not a value pick at all. It's just like, how do you get from from that to, you know, from his underlying numbers to where he is? It's a mixture of like more penalties than you'd expect, more finishing than you'd expect and more assists than you'd expect. But when do we start like believing that this is just what he does or something like that. What do you guys think? It's, it's probably hard to believe, I suppose, that the level of, I guess, short-term outperforms. One thing I'd say is that the, the volume of XG today isn't high enough to extrapolate from, okay, do you know what, he's an elite level finisher. And do you know what, maybe he is. Uh, and that's something maybe with your eyes you can see quite quickly. But you, you still wouldn't expect close to the level of overperformance that, that we're seeing. Um, I, I mean, fancy assists are, are kind of, I, I don't know what to say about them or why they're even in the game, but they're there. So uh, prob- probably yeah, it's a big question mark. Why don't just leave Opta, you know, to determine, okay, that's an assist or not. And They're often like, it's, it's some kind of extremely like tenuous, bizarre kind of, did it touch the, his foot? It's like a VAR-like situation, you know, it, only, yeah. it doesn't need to be, where it counts as an assist if he kind of meant to hit it in that direction, even though it took a massive de- like deflection and stuff like that. It's just like, it's so dumb. Uh, and it, it kind of rewards yeah. players who are already in attacking positions who are likely to get points anyway. If it was one thing that kind of benefited players who, you know, whatever, they're deeper on the pitch and they're contributing different ways, you'd say yeah. fair enough. But it, yeah. it's kind of a weird element of the game that I've never really understood. Yeah. It compounds oh, the kind of, like, the, the chance of these, like, undeserved returns, you know, like and, and kind of, like, these huge spikes that people just happen to land on or they just happen to have their captain on a guy in one week. There's a case, I think, for giving fantasy assists for winning the free kick or the penalty, uh, which is rewarding something a, a little bit different. But, yeah, I think lots of the other ones in terms of rebounds and so on don't, don't improve the game. Yeah, and I agree as well. But I suppose I was kind of realised this kind of diversion away from the whole Bruno question, which was how, how can a player do what he's doing? You know, and I guess Greenwood was a similar one last season. Like how can a player outperform XG so much? And I guess the answer is that's what we perceive as a decent sample can specifically with XG can, and shot volumes is actually still quite small. Like one of the things that I was, I was running recently was I was, I was taking 1000 shot samples of XG just various different types of shots and you're saying okay for an average player like a totally average finisher i think there's something like a over 1000 shots there's like a 33 percent chance you'll think he's a good finisher a 33 percent chance you think he's a below average finisher and so it's defining that by okay. whatever five five percent of over below average there's like a 10 percent chance or something that you i suppose if we said 10 10 percent above expected finishing um, was elite there'd be a 10 percent chance you'd view him as elite and we're looking at samples that are I mean, compared to 1,000 shots are just far, far lower. Just the, the volume of noise is something that I guess is hard for us to intuit and accept, really. I mean, even for myself, uh, and definitely before looking at the data, it would be totally non-obvious. It, it kind of, I don't know, the magic of the game, you know, is there, and it's, it's hard to ignore. 
I think the thing on on Bruno Fernandes is he's kind of getting variants on three sides and they're they're all pointing in the same direction, which is adding up to this incredibly large gap between the underlying and the the actual FPL points. So I think just looking at the, the league games for Manchester United, he's got 10 assists from four expected assists. He's got seven non-penalty goals from 3.7 non-penalty yeah. XG. And he's had seven penalties, of which he's missed one <laughs> in yeah. 21 games. And most of that was last year when there wasn't this absurd number of penalties. So that may not be such an absurd rate this year, given that penalties overall have increased. But it's just like everything is compounding to say like, any one of those three things would be unusual, but to have all three is just creating this huge gap between the number of points that he's got so far and where, as an analytical players of the game, we would expect his future returns to, to be. Yes. Do you think there's any credence in like any sort of footballing idea that, you know, because of the positions he's always in or because of, you know, his influence or this, that or the other, or the fact that maybe attacks get funneled through him a lot, that there should be some like greater than normal reason for us to believe that he's going to produce above his like expected uh, like goals and assists? Or are we just calling foul on like Bruno Fernandes, are we are we going to say that he's just not going to persist at this level? Well, I'd say it's hard to see him persisting at this level, but maybe what you might see is long-term, like you might see, okay, he takes shots from a range where, you know, particularly good strikers of the ball tend to outperform XG. Um, and we might find, you know what, this guy is a very good finisher, strikes the ball very well. But, and maybe with Roy's, you can view it from the technique of, okay, is the ball going where he wants it? that kind of stuff but yet it's something from the data and you know what that's not going to make the incredible difference that we're seeing in outcome that's only going to partially explain a small bit of what we're seeing so uh, I'd say yeah there's no way we can reasonably expect any kind of repeat I uh, presume Simon's probably got a similar view I don't know yeah I think so I think the idea that because he's central to the attacks that they should outperform their expected stats doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me in terms of the logic. You may see that, you may expect that if every single attack is going through him, then you would expect his underlying numbers to improve over time. The sample is getting reasonably large now, though. We've got, what, like 21 games in the Premier League, and we've got another 560 minutes in the Europa League and Champions League for Manchester United. So... It's, it's starting to get to the point where the, the sample is kind of large enough to be a bit more stable. I think when it was only 14 games there, I think review, we had a discussion on Twitter actually with a, with a few others of like, where would you expect his, his kind of baseline non-penalty to be in terms of the underlying? And I think I was kind of just basing it off the XG. I think you had it a little bit higher, uh, like maybe a 0.3 rather than a 0.2 XG. It, in, intuitively, not necessarily based just on the models. But the idea that just because they're influential on the pitch, that that should be captured by the model rather than sitting outside it. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, we should we should be seeing that, and, and it, it would influence the XG numbers directly. Um, conversion is something totally different, and yeah, shouldn't be I guess uh, conflated. But yeah, I, I suppose it's going to be interesting to see. Maybe he's the greatest footballer of all time, and he's like an alien or something, and <laughs> totally turn out to be totally reasonable. But it's hard to imagine. 
Yeah, I mean, the best thing he's done is he's taken seven penalties in four in in twenty one games, you know, and that's like that that's just so so wild, you know. You were saying something like you wondered if it's that abnormal this year, but he's taken three and seven this year, and uh, you know, I know like Vardy's, Vardy, you know, like not not to say you're wrong, but it's just like maybe we've just become like numb to this the fact that Bruno's getting penalties all the time because three and seven is just is madness. It's it's not Vardy, but it's this year. But to take seven penalties in in, in his twenty one games in the Premier League, that just can't keep happening. We were having a little nose at penalty predicting penalties earlier as well, weren't we? Review. Do you, did you have any findings from that that are interesting or worth talking about? Yeah, so I guess we we were looking at like what should what variables you know should we be looking at for penalties? How we should weigh them? Also looking at, oh, do you know what? What did it predict for Man United last season? Considering it was such an outlier, is there any kind of reasonable logic to explain it? And, and I guess we, we were looking at all the kind of reasonable stuff that you might, penalty area touches, pre-match expected goals. Um, so that model was uh, based on bookmakers' um, odds, which tends right. to work quite well. And a few other pieces of information, previous penalties over the past season, that kind of stuff. And it was quite clear to stand out variables where team strength or like expected goals on the day and also penalty area touches which was the strongest but also we kind of have to be careful that that's a post-match data point which I suppose it's obviously easier to be more predictive post-match than it is pre-match but I guess we were doing some kind of okay at high level could could we make a reasonably simple and intuitive model that predicts penalty area touches based on past data and we were and that's something you can do and it works quite well you know determining okay and um, this team is quite likely to get a lot of penalty area touches in this match to expect to get a lot of goals and we regress it those two variables work out quite nicely and strongly with a bit of normalization and it makes sense i mean i guess the fundamental idea is what's going to drive a penalty and obviously you have to be likely to be in the box and likely to be doing something dangerous with the ball to drive a defender to um, make that kind of mistake. But yeah, then you apply the numbers and you see, okay, Man United were expected to get probably half the penalties they got last season. I mean, I don't know if we can treat it as the final answer. There's obviously human things that may, or tactical things that may influence it, but from the data, you can see it's just such an outlier. Like, And it's hard to imagine them having a special tactic that other teams haven't spotted and adopted. Yeah, it's the same sort of finding that you had from your, your little the study that you did it as well in the summer assignment, I think it was, that we talked about on one of the earlier pods. It's just like, you know, if, the, if Man United were doing something that was meaning they were going to be, you know, you could see that they were just in the box way more than other teams or like, you know, doing certain actions that might lead to creating penalties, but really not much showing up in the models. So it's just, you just have to, I don't know, maybe we just have to keep betting against him. But it's quite hard to do. Certainly with Salah being out this week, as someone who's on a wild card, it's actually quite tempting to take Bruno to for the West Brom uh, home match. Yeah, I, th- uh, I think on, on Bruno Fernandes, even though we're all quite sceptical and our, and our model's quite sceptical of his output, I have him as the second highest scorer this week behind Salah. And so if Salah doesn't play, he's, he's the best captain in the game this week for me, purely because of the fixture. So I, on a wild card, I, I would I would have him as a placeholder for Salah. I think that's that's a nice little strategy. Cool. Someone else I'm thinking about on a wild card. I was interested in your guys' thoughts. Was Diogo Jota? He started to like 
kind of force his way into the starting lineup at Liverpool, or so it seemed. He's averaged something like 55 minutes in the last six Premier League games, kind of like starting one, subbing on in one. But then he also had like consecutive starts in Champions League and League, and he was like tearing it up in the Champions League as well. Obviously, his numbers are, are really good in the sample that we've got. And Liverpool being like shorthanded makes me think that it's more likely if they just want to get their best 11 out that he will be getting more minutes coming up soon obviously the fixtures are nice is that someone like what do you guys think about Jota is that just sort of like Foden mark two and you have to like know what you're getting into and be prepared to be very patient and like take some bad beats when he gets benched or do you think that he's actually like real outsized value for the um, short term because you expect him to get quite a lot of minutes I, I suppose it's probably easier if you're a Liverpool fan and you know the team inside out and you, you've kind of got a, a great read on what Klopp's going to do. But when you're a bit on the outside, it, it does feel a bit like, okay, you know, this is another kind of Foden situation, which which has the potential to pay off. And, it, and it's just this question of, I guess, willingness to take the risk. To us, I, I haven't really even tried to entertain too much a thought of who I'd bring in on a wild card. But, but he's definitely there. And, you know, the question is really, okay, in the squads, is there X amount of risks within the team? And if there isn't, it's, it's probably more like going from, isn't this probably less of a problem? Having a few players like that, maybe I'd be a bit nervous of. So I suppose it just depends on the overall structure of your team, whether or not I, I feel comfortable. So for me, the, the thing that I want to see is Liverpool playing the 44 or the 431, whatever you want to call it, uh, on a regular basis. So I was quite surprised that they lined up that way against Manchester City. So we've seen it previously where Klopp's played that. I think a couple of years ago, played it with Shakiri quite a lot against the weaker teams and has played and then played the 4-3-3 in harder matches. So the fact that he played the 4-2-4 against City is really interesting to me. So yeah. if Liverpool roll out the 4-3-3 on a regular basis, I think Jota is a no-go. He'll get some starts, but you'd have to think that he's not going to get regular enough minutes in that formation to make him worth it. But if, they, if they're playing four attackers instead of three on a regular basis, then Jota becomes a bit of a game-breaker, in my opinion. So that's the thing that I'm looking out for. I probably wouldn't jump yet, but it's, it's definitely something I'm kind of keeping in the back of my mind. Yeah, it's a big temptation on a wild card, I've got to say, because it's just like a chance at a big edge and what's the downside, really? I don't know if it's that big. You know, I think the way that my team would be structured probably would be like a 3-5-2 if I took Jota. And if I didn't, maybe I'd have a 3-4-3 where he was Antonio or Bamford or Watkins instead. So I would probably like retain that option of just like taking him on the wild card and then moving him if it looks bad. And just like switching up the structure. It's something that I'm kind of... Mm, probably leaning towards doing if I uh, if I do wildcard, which I'm leaning towards doing. Interesting. I, I, I For me, that's the kind of punt where I go, that's a, a two-transfer get-out rather than a one-transfer get-out, and that makes me nervous, but maybe I've just got Phil Foden PTSD. <laughs> I'll just go back to Foden. It'll be fine. <laughs> when we did the uh, modelling episode... We asked for questions and FPL Review sent a question that was really good. And it was, what do you uh, consider to be the greatest challenge in building a model? 
I have my own ideas about this, but I'd be interested to know what you think. And we didn't answer that question. And so now that we have FPL review on the pod, I'd like to ask him what he believes the greatest modeling challenge is. I'm sure he's got some interesting <laughs> thoughts on this. You turned it back on him. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a few interesting challenges, I guess, depending on how, how you use your model. And it can be different, especially if you're how you're dealing with minutes. For, for me, it's very clearly being minutes, which were just, I mean, tr- trying to come up with a model for that. A lot, you end up having to create a, a tool that kind of simulates the thought process of a manager, which is totally bizarre. And it, it, the weird thing is it, it works very, very well, which is, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, it, it's probably linked. I, I work in engineering and you create models and things are linked and they work in kind of this process. And you can almost view it more like that than a, a typical kind of regression or something like a machine learning model. It's something mm. where, okay, you can map out this almost structured process or algorithm, apply weightings that seem sensible. And you know what? It, it can actually work very, very well. Um, and, and for me, that, that was kind of difficult because I'm trying to use these automated minutes, which maybe is a bit different to somebody, you know, who's has a personal model where they kind of input their own values. And that, that's kind of what you're relying on, in which case you could imagine, well, I, I'd imagine things like data cleansing, handling data cleanly, and also not overfitting models are very, very challenging and sometimes not obvious things that can really um, lead people astray. So yeah, I, I guess it'd be interesting to see what, what uh, you have run into. Yeah, I think I think I'd, I'd definitely agree on on minutes. So even if you're not kind of modeling them in a formal way, trying to work out player minutes, even if you're doing it without a model at all, you're still kind of using your internal mental model. It's incredibly hard to quantify for exactly the reasons you laid out. I think the other part that I find quite difficult is bonus points. They're an absolute nightmare. So I have a, a like bonus kind of module to the model. It's not very good from the testing. Uh, I haven't found a better one from the data that I've got. There's quite a lot of stuff going on in the bonus point system that make it quite hard to to spit out because you've got not only the, the kind of player baseline bonus plus their chance of returning, you've also got kind of their team style. So if you're Raul Jimenez in a Wolves team who never go forward, your goal is much more likely to be the only goal in the game. But then your defenders are also more likely to get a clean sheet. And so you've got all these kind of, you've got so many moving parts. And if you're trying to regress all of those moving parts, then you end up with just multicollinearity all over the place and too many variables to get anything useful. So you're, you're, you're making decisions about what to include and what not to before you start running your regressions. And it's, it's one of those places where I think when I next get a chunk of free time, I need to delve really deeply into kind of rebuilding that from scratch. Um, so that's that's the kind of other big modeling challenge that I find. Mm, cool. Yeah, I'm actually looking at setting up a model at the moment, which is kind of trying to piggyback off my team ratings model. Like, because I have like a good amount of belief in um, the quality of the output of it. So I thought, well, why not use that to inform, like one thing that's really hard to capture in players is, how much better and worse they're getting over time and how you should weight that data. So if I'm already doing that at the team level, all I'd need to know is what share of those goals or a share of those assists I'd expect a certain individual to get. And I think for modeling bonus points, that could be a really powerful approach, actually, because it kind of 
captures the point that you were making, Simon, about um, you know Jimenez being a volume scorer on a low-scoring team. He'll have a really outsized share of their goals. So it might be something that just kind of struck me that might be a good thing to build into a bonus model. It's kind of the same with Pope. It's like one of the reasons why he's such a bonus magnet has to be because when Burnley do well, they get a clean sheet. And and he makes a lot of saves, you know, so he's kind of getting this disproportionate share of the good stuff when things go well. Um, so, yeah, that's that's one something I'll, I'll look into when I'm, uh, I'm building this model, because I think it could be quite simple and um, quite a fun thing to do. In terms of like a challenge for me, I was the thing that I thought of, apart from minutes, which is the thing that I thought of. And I wondered if that's what you were thinking about too. review. One thing that's good for like a good step for people to have in mind is how you get from predicting players' points well to how good value are they? Like, how much do you want them in your team? How much do they contribute to, like, what I call an efficient team? A team that's, like, on an efficient frontier of, like, points for, like, production for cost. Um, So something that I built into my model was, you know, you can regress the amount of points that you'd expect for a player at a certain price, and then you can just have a simple like deviance function where it's saying, well, okay, what's how much above or below that expectation? Uh, you know, I've, I've got a six million pound defender. How many points more or less than the expectation is uh, do I expect this player to score? And that can kind of serve as a proxy as a value measure. I think that's a really kind of good insight for you know, there's there's nothing really that's better than just doing lots and lots of iterations of teams like when you're I don't know exactly how your optimizer works review but I imagine it tries just like it brute forces it to an extent by trying lots and lots of different versions of teams with players that you expect to be near value and this is quite a good way if you're making like a manual model to narrow that search space a lot and point you towards players that should make up good parts of efficient teams if they have like a high value for how many points they're scoring relative to what you might expect them to score so yeah we could maybe talk about that more on another pod sometime yeah yeah that's a, that's a big problem yeah jesus and um, definitely yeah, yeah i'd agree worthy of it on pod and kind of goes into this thing of you know optimization do linear models work does it have to be non-linear can we use basically like approximations um, to kind of simplify it all because I don't think it's reasonable yeah, for to expect people to be developing their own optimization scripts as part of this whole thing. Not exactly the most thrilling or fun. What? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's niche, it's niche. But so are we. So, so yeah, so exactly trying to come up with a, a good rule of thumb of, do you know what, y- you can look at their value or whatever and get a good read right away relative to somebody at a totally different price point, um, which, which is tricky. Uh, I know Mikhail Tokvam has a, a nice way of dealing with it, which comes from, I think, some kind of optimization. But yeah, it's something that's there's a lot of metrics out there and it's it's hard to develop or the, the kind of, well, there is probably no right answer for something like that because it's very team dependent. It is. And the, and the rules complicate it a bit as well with the, the sub-ons and the captaincy and stuff like that. You know, that those are things that kind of are little thorns in your side when you're trying to come up with an elegant solution for something like that. For sure. I think that's a good place to leave it. So review, thank you so much for joining us. I think it's, it's been a blast. Uh, I've, I've definitely learned a lot. So thanks for coming on.
Cheers. Yeah, it's been it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And who knows, maybe maybe sometime in the future, the three of us will be discussing completely mad stuff again. Let's see. Yeah, we, I mean, the, I'm sure we have a lot more questions. Um, so yeah, we'd we'd love to get you back on at some point. If you're still with us, I think it's going to be quite a long one. Give us a review. No pun intended. Leave us five stars. But otherwise, uh, bye from me and and Jamie. Anything more? Yeah, well, I'm just going to ask if we hit the five-hour mark. I know there was uh, there was quite a lot of popular demand. People were clamoring for the longest pod ever, so I felt like we got up there somewhere. Yeah, not not bad, not bad. <laughs> um, no, that's all for me. I'm just going to go and um, not sleep, thinking about whether I'm going to wild card or not. <laughs> yes, sweet dreams of, of a wild card team. All right, <laughs> take care. Bye. Cheers, bye.